Welcome to today's podcast. This is Milton. Richard Carlton is the CEO of the Canadian Securities Exchange. We're going to be talking about strategies for investing in the cannabis space. That said, none of this is any advice, just good ideas to help you think about investment, the cannabis industry, and what the Canadian Securities Exchange Commission does. So enjoy the show. Thank you, Richard, for joining me on the podcast. And uh, I wonder if we can begin by you giving me a, a good idea of what the Canadian Securities Exchange does. Well, the Canadian Securities Exchange was uh, founded in uh, 2003 and became a uh, fully recognized exchange back in 2004. So we're now 14, 15 years old. And like many uh, startup enterprises, uh, you know, it can be described safely as a 15-year-old uh, overnight success. The organization was uh, developed and backed by a number of experienced uh, folks in the uh, Canadian securities industry to provide an exchange that would uh, facilitate capital formation for early stage companies in Canada. At the time, we were the first exchange that had been uh, recognized in Canada dating back to the 1920s. So this isn't something that happens all that often, to put it mildly. We uh, work to build the franchise of uh, uniquely listed companies. And we were also a pioneer in offering multiple market trading. So we also provide trading services for stocks that are listed on other Canadian exchanges as well. So people that are trading stocks that are listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange or the Venture Exchange, for example, may find that their order was in fact executed on the Canadian Securities Exchange as well. But we really began to hit our stride about, uh, well, in the spring of 2014. We had the first of the Canadian applicants for medical marijuana cultivation licenses. Uh, they were having some issues being listed on other exchanges in Canada. We worked with those issuers and concluded that, in fact, they were entirely appropriate to list on, a, on, on the Canadian Securities Exchange. And importantly, of course, use that as a platform to raise further capital to fund their growth and development and to provide liquidity for their early stage investors as they, you know, as the company began to mature. So beginning, as I say, probably I think in February or March of uh, 2014, we had the first of the, the Canadian company. And those were Aurora and Supreme, both of whom have since, they would tell you, gone on to bigger and better things. But uh, within a relatively short period of time, we had about 30 companies in the space generally speaking with operations in Canada only, but a broad range of different uh, businesses, everything from cultivating to pharmacological research to a company that was uh, looking at roadside breathalyzers, for example, working with law enforcement to determine THC toxicity, for example. I think it was uh, maybe a year or so later, we had the first of the US companies, Golden Leaf Holdings approached us. And we obviously had to consider the issues very carefully uh, with Golden Leaf. They were operating at the time in the state of Washington, uh, which is one of the pioneers on uh, legality of recreational use of uh, cannabis products. And we concluded after a substantial amount of uh, you know, thought and, uh, and, and research that in fact, we could in fact offer listing services uh, to a company with operations in the US cannabis industry. There wasn't, I guess, an immediate take up from, from their peer group in the United States. There were some reasons for that, but 
we did build a following in the United States as a result of that. There was a lot of investor interest as well in the cannabis space of the cannabis issuers that, uh, that, that we were listing at the time. And really, I guess the next big uh, milestone for us was uh, the listing of MedMen, which is a California-based uh, company. Very complicated dual structure, uh, dual share structure, where the founders uh, you know, retain multiple voting shares and uh, the public securities represent about, I think, at, at this point in time, 10 or 12% of the uh, actual enterprise value of the company. In any event, uh, MedMen was really the first of a whole series of very, very substantial U.S. issuers to join the Canadian Securities Exchange. Companies with an enterprise value that far exceed a uh, billion, two billion dollars uh, kind of thing. And unlike the Canadian companies that first approached us back in 2014, you know, they were all, of course, pre-revenue at that point. They were looking to raise capital to finish the uh, construction of the greenhouse to fund operations through Health Canada approval, for example. These U.S. issuers, in fact, are already substantial enterprises that have, from cultivation through retail operations, they've got you know, sales, substantial uh, revenues, and in some cases, in fact, are even profitable uh, at this point. So a big change in terms of the maturity, I, I guess, of the companies, as, as well as the breadth of the operations that they, uh, that they represented. So as I say, we're certainly now in a cycle where we see a continuous stream of very substantial US companies that are coming and listing on the Canadian Securities Exchange. They are raising substantial amounts of investment capital, not just from Canada, but really from global investors with a higher participation rates from the institutional side than we've seen up till now. And, uh, you know, I really do have to give a shout out to the independent dealer community in Canada because, again, this is not a story that the Canadian bank investment dealers have been involved with. This is entirely uh, work of, uh, you know, firms like Canaccord and GMP and Echelon and so on that have, um, and, and I've now gotten about five or six of the other firms that have been significant in the space mad at me. Um, <laughs> but uh, they know who they are and we love them. Uh, we love them all equally. But, uh, you know, those firms have been, as I say, very active and very successful in raising capital and in supporting the growth of the sector in the Canadian public markets. People always ask us, you know, what are you guys focusing on? You know, what's, what, what, what's the next thing? What, what's the exchange going to, to where, where are you really going to be looking to? And the answer is, and, and people find this actually deeply unsatisfying, but it actually happens to be the truth. We actually reflect what investors are buying, what, what, what stories they're funding at a particular point in time. So it, it's hard for us to you know, really lead the industry in any direction because the reality is the industry is telling us what's getting funded, right? So yeah, I mean, have we spent time talking to folks in the US cannabis space? Have we also been talking to folks interested in the blockchain world and life sciences and, you know, continue to do work in the mining and oil and gas exploration space? Of course we are. But the reality is that when you look at the companies that are coming onto the exchange, that's a result of, a, of them successfully winning investment capital from, from the marketplace and not really a result of us saying, okay, you know, this year is going to be cannabis or next year is going to be blockchain. We can say that all we want, 
it's really up to the investors to basically back those stories and ensure that those companies secure the, the capital they require in order to meet the requirements and, and become public companies on the exchange. We are headquartered in Toronto. We have, we have an office in Vancouver. Traditionally, British Columbia has been a very large source of, uh, uh, of issuers uh, for the Canadian Securities Exchange. Uh, we also have people working across uh, Canada uh, in uh, business development uh, for us. So working with the corporate finance folks and the entrepreneurs in the local community to make sure that uh, if as and when they decide to do a public deal, the Canadian Securities Exchange is part of the conversation when they're thinking about where do they list. So I think in understanding sort of the role that we play and, and, and where we're coming from, our competitors are way older than we are by, by comparison. And we had an opportunity to basically build a model from scratch back in the, in the early aughts, I guess we call them now, with the benefit of, you know, that, that thing called the internet and news and analytical tools and real-time market information, historical information, electronic access to company filings and records and, um, and, and so on. Very, very powerful tools that are in the hands of, you know, not just the professional investment community, but the retail investment community as well. So we felt that we could actually take a lot of the cost and risk out of the listings process if we focused on a company's disclosure, as opposed to having the exchange second guess or review or require approval from the exchange for any one of a number of things that the company might do, whether that's do an acquisition or you know, do a spin out of some assets or raise capital or you know, change their share structure or you know, otherwise do the things that uh, you know, companies actually do quite often, especially in the early capital uh, markets. We felt that uh, it was probably a better model to have companies disclose their plans to the marketplace and let the marketplace price you know, they're, they're, you know, sort of the, the relative value of what the company's planning to do. So again, we think that the market is in fact better situated, a better place to price risk than, you know, those of us who are sitting here in the in an office building in the corner of Wellington and Bay Streets in downtown Toronto or on West Pender in uh, Vancouver to uh, uh, second guess company management, if you will. The market is immediate and it's pretty merciless uh, if it sees things that it doesn't like. And contrary, if they you know, like the direction of management, they like the plans, they like the opportunities for the company to uh, continue to grow, then as I say, you will see the market reward the company with a, with a higher valuation on their securities. I also want people to understand we're not here to give advice. Uh, anything we say here is just educational and insightful. I, for example, will not be looking at these companies specifically for investment purposes. They're just used for examples to discuss some of the points that we're going to say. There are retail labs, manufacturers, growers, medical or law or accounting and so forth. See any trends? Understand that we have uh, close to 130 companies that uh, identify as uh, being in the cannabis space in some way, shape or form. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a standalone lab. There are a number of issues that offer laboratory, i.e. testing or quality assurance services in connection with their operation and, and do so to, you know, for third parties. So, you know, there, there is no doubt that uh, a number of uh, companies see that as an important part of the value add uh, that they can provide. 
and uh, there has been substantial investment in in the provision of laboratory facilities uh, both in Canada and, uh, and and in the United States. There's no doubt that there's a tremendous intellectual property war going on amongst the folks that are uh, and, and and from a variety of perspectives whether it's you know the, the creation or development of delivery mechanisms whether it's you know the extraction technologies i mean again and i think that's a particular area of focus especially now that with the anticipated uh, uh, signing of the farm act in the or the farm bill in the united states and the removal of uh, cannabinoids uh, from Schedule One of the uh, U.S. Uh, Controlled Substances Act, we expect to see a, a dramatic increase in the amount of extraction of uh, CBD from industrial hemp. And uh, we have a number of issues issuers that are already active in that space. And with those CBDs, of course, being used as uh, components in various healthcare products, you know creams, topicals, and so on uh, for skin care, pain management, uh, and uh, a variety of other issues. So, as I say, we see extraction technology as an area of, uh, of genuine development. And if you go to any of the big conferences in the space, you'll see more uh, big stainless steel extraction uh, units on the, uh, on the floor of the show than just about anything else that, uh, that you see. And again, I mean, I think just to anticipate, you know, the trajectory of the conversation here, you know, it, it is a, it's obviously a sunrise industry and one that is expected to be quite substantial, you know, not just simply from a recreational use perspective, but across a whole range of different uh, uh, areas, uh, you know, again, whether it's uh, in, the, in the beverages uh, space or pharmaceutical space or the skincare, nutraceuticals and, and, and so on. So we're really seeing a lot of innovation and a variety of uh, the parts of the value chain as people try to you know, capture that unique capability and, and be able to capture margin. So thinking about, again, you, you talk about the, the, the different areas, you know, the cultivators are obviously under tremendous pressure to reduce the costs uh, because that's how they're going to be, you know, in effect, become the world beaters. And uh, of course, companies in North America, in particular Canada, who have to grow inside, basically, both for weather reasons and uh, licensing reasons, you know, are at a significant, you know, they've got significant challenges vis-a-vis uh, -vis other parts of the world. You know, we talk to people from Jamaica, from Colombia, uh, from Israel, various parts around the Mediterranean basin in South Africa, where people can intensively cultivate both hemp and cannabis plants outdoors 365 days a year and use that as feedstock for, you know, again, through the use of extraction technology to provide distillates and concentrates and so on. So it's going to be, I think, a, a genuine challenge for, you know, the North American growers to, uh, you know, really, really build a high margin business. Uh, and again, I think it's fair to say that's true in just about uh, any field of uh, consumer packaging. You know, it's, the, the farmers tend not to make the, the high margins. Those tend to be reserved for people that are, you know, packaging the products into consumer goods, uh, for example. As I mentioned, we have 125 to 130 companies total in the space. And the most recent number that I saw is that 54 of them uh, had operations in the United States.
maybe not exclusively, but but you know have have exposure to the U.S. market. The most powerful trend that we see right now is uh, on the financing side. So that during the uh, course of uh, 2018 so far, companies on the CSE have raised in total, not just from the cannabis space, about $5 billion in uh, investment capital. About 3.3 billion of that uh, is from the cannabis space. And of that amount, about 60% was raised by the US, uh, by US issuers. And so, and that trend has been getting, if you looked at the start of the year, it was almost all Canadian. And then the US guys have been catching up and catching up. And in fact, last month exceeded the investment capital raised uh, by the sector exceeded the Canadian uh, their Canadian peers, you know, over the course of the month of November. So it's um, and 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 again, uh, really that was back from maybe August or thereabouts when we when we saw the MedMen uh, listing, and so and th there have been some very very large uh, financings uh, since then. Cureleaf, Green Thumb Industries, uh, Global Growth Brands. Harvest, acreage, and so on, that, uh, as I say, have added up to a very considerable amount of money that's been raised, and, and that is, you know, the, the very powerful trend right now is is definitely in favor of the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, U.S. issues. A couple of years ago, we had high tech boom, and what I remember from looking at some of the companies when they were doing very well, a lot of the press started to talk about how management was the critical factor or understanding the customer to explain why the company was successful. When the uh, stock uh, decreased, they reversed and they said management was horrible. They didn't pay attention to their customers and they were going in the wrong direction. What I'm illustrating is the idea of a halo effect, the idea that we can give great credit to companies and ignore the, the th things that might not be successful. And so unfortunately, when we pick stock, we don't realize we have our own biases. So we just believe that no bad can come from this particular company. So I'm just gonna begin the process of asking you some questions about some of the companies. I'm not asking you for any uh, pointed fingers because I don't think that's very good of you to do. And you're not gonna get any. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but here's a question I have. Uh, say I look at the financial statements of Aurora and I'm just using them as an example. Is that a good approach starting with that? Looking at the cash flow? You know, it, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, way of looking at it because certainly, up until this year, the cash that was being generated by the Canadian LPs was very modest in comparison with the valuations that they were being awarded, right? Which tells you that these were really, you know, sunrise stories that were based on significant or expectations of significant cash flow that these organizations would be generating. But they were still, you know, really in the blue sky phase of the development of the corporation. And we're still really in that space. I mean, if you think about, you know, having moved from the medical market that these companies were originally serving under the licensing regime, again, in the, in the grand scheme of things, relatively modest compared to what the expectations are ultimately for, you know, recreational use. We're still, as I say, there because if you think about it, the sales that uh, should be generated uh, on the, on the uh, uh, after the legalization of recreational use are again very very modest because of all the challenges associated with the, the, the retail market in Canada. So if you look at you know here we are in Ontario or I'm in Ontario, um, most populous province in Canada, there are no bricks and mortar stores or at least legal ones. 
you're using the uh, Ontario Cannabis Store, a, a website, uh, and Canada Post to do the delivery. Well, of course, there were rotating strikes. And uh, of course, the, the folks organizing the rotating strikes didn't, you know, it wasn't by accident, you know, that the places that they decided to go on strike, they wanted to inflict the maximum amount of uh, pain uh, on, on Canada Post. So it was a situation where that system really, really was not functioning at all. And to top it off, uh, there was a privacy breach of the early customers, so that, uh, you know, which would further, again, you know, limit people from, you know, wanting to uh, patronize that particular facility. Province of Quebec, um, the stores are only open, what, Thursdays through Sundays because of an absence of product. I was in Montreal last week and I said, this, this is like, you know, Russia in, the, in 1965. Like, you're walking down the street, you see a big lineup and you go in and, and go and stand in it. You don't know what, what it is that they're selling. It might be shoes, it might be bread or whatever. But, you know, hey, they've got something that people need. Well, of course, in, in Montreal, it's, uh, you know, one of the three uh, uh, marijuana stores. Uh, bricks and mortar stores on the uh, on on the island. I mean, this is crazy. And uh, so, again, I think what I'm saying is, the Canadian LPs are still in a situation where comparing or or, or doing a typical you know price earnings analysis and so on, uh, we're not there yet by a long shot. And so, you know, very much what people are looking at is. You know what are the expectations? What are the potential here? Not you know, in fact, what they've been able to do, because as I say, the 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 the, the marketplace has been just incredibly challenging for these folks. Now, conversely, folks in the United States have been dealing with a considerably more organized and more permissive regime when it comes to generating revenues, and so I think it does make sense to look at again if you've got uh, an accounting background. It makes perfect sense to look at, you know, are these companies hitting the sales uh, targets, benchmarks, is revenue growth in line with what the expectations were? Is the company management executing against their plans? Do the costs appear to be, you know, in line again with what management was forecasting? What does the competitive landscape look like in the jurisdictions that they're operating? Because again, the, the rules are very different depending on companies operating in. Nevada versus California versus uh, you know some of the other uh, jurisdictions on the East Coast that are now liberalizing. So again, a, a more analytical approach I think makes a tremendous amount of sense when you're looking at the uh, you know folks, the operators uh, in in the United States. Benjamin Graham, I think he mentioned something about how a lot of the stock market is speculation. I was just trying to say that there's a variability on how people make decisions and it's not easy to keep track of why stock increases or decreases. I think one of the views that I've had coming from an accounting background is what you might call a fundamental, where you just look at the numbers and you hope that the numbers give you something. This is a new industry as in it's starting, so we might have to wait a couple more years before those numbers might show us more uh, insight. One way of saying yes, uh, strict fundamental analysis, which is uh, you know boiled down present value of a future dividend stream, you know, is, is clearly not applicable at this point. And again, I, I think your, your point is an important one, which is that, uh, you know, whether you use the word speculation or not, but again, returns should be risk adjusted. And there's no doubt in the early days of the industry, whether we're talking about, you know, Canadian companies, U.S. companies, or folks from other parts of the world, 
that um, you know we we are in the early stages of this space there is a lot of risk and you know all of the kinds of risks whether it's uh, regulatory risk execution risk all, all of the above and so you know the expectation should be that if you do in fact invest successfully in the space the returns that you earn should be comparable that they, they will be outsized compared to you know the the core part of of your portfolio which should be you know much more conservative much more analytically driven and uh, you know something that uh, well well obviously subject to changes in sentiment in the broader market um, you know people don't buy and I'll pick on the Royal Bank of Canada for a second but people don't buy the Royal Bank of Canada expecting it's going to increase by a factor of four in the next two years now uh, you know I <laughs> As I say, it might, and and I could you know explain what what global circumstances might lead to that uh, uh, development. But uh, but same token, people uh, investing in early stage companies, if the company is in fact successful, becomes one of the market leaders in the space, and that your insight, I guess, as uh, and, and and work has paid off in in choosing that winner. I mean, you would expect to see you know, the kinds of uh, outsized returns that uh, you know, people hear about from time to time in this, uh, in this part of the space. But I think fundamentally, you know, the, the interesting thing about the cannabis space, unlike other Canadian early stage investment stories like mining and, and oil and gas exploration, for example, is that, you know, in the, in the latter case, you know, the, the results tend to be binary. You know, it's either worth nothing or there's something of commercial grade and uh, it's a project worth pursuing. Um, in the cannabis industry, you know, this is a real business, right? We know it's a real business. It's a, it's a substantial black market business. It will be bigger as a legitimate business because it will be servicing not just a relatively small limited recreational market, but with considerable applications, uh, you know, into the cosmetics, healthcare, and, uh, and a variety of other uh, places. So that, you know, we know there, there, there will be winners uh, in this space. There will be companies that uh, do you know find the correct formula and, and become successful in the areas that they are looking to operate so so you have that assurance that you know that there will be you know again some some companies that do in fact uh, succeed here clearly and 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 this really goes back to the idea behind the uh, regulation model that the canadian securities exchange employs is there is a lot of information out there about these companies and it will be set out in the listing statement or the prospectus uh, that the company does before they come, before they go public. And there is a substantial portion of both of those documents devoted to risk identification and analysis. And if you really, really want to, you know, have a nice long sleep one night, pick up, uh, in particular, one of the uh, U.S.-based issuers and read the, the legal and regulatory risk component of their listing statement. Uh, it goes it goes deep in terms of all of the different things that uh, that could happen. But that said, I mean, people need to understand what what is going on, and I think you know as importantly what the company is doing uh, actively to mitigate those uh, th those risks. So yes, um, should people be looking at uh, all of the disclosure information that's available about the company? Absolutely. We have, uh, for companies listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange, by going to our website, clicking through to the company's page, uh, you will have access to all of the information that they have filed with us and the information that they've filed onto the 
uh, CDAR, which is the electronic disclosure system that we have for documents uh, for, for public issuers in Canada. And you'll see all of the information that the company is required to, to file uh, from the financial, the annual audits, the quarterly financial statements, any of the material that they filed in uh, news releases and, and, and so on and so forth. Absolutely, it's a treasure trove of information for people to look at. And uh, as I say, I, I, I think they, they absolutely should be availing themselves of that uh, opportunity. I looked through some material on the idea of the halo effect on how uh, companies look good when there might be other issues or the opposite, that there's no one way of uh, evaluating performance that can be replicated to another company. So each company has their own reason for success or failure, uh, regardless of whatever we, we figure out. One of the views is that we correlate and find causations to things that sometimes maybe we shouldn't. And another type of bias or delusion is when a company is successful, we continue to think it'll continue to be successful. So we have this view that the last data point is the same as the, the next one. That's a pretty popular uh, myth among some MBAs. Past performance of a company isn't necessarily a predictor of future performance. That sounds, that sounds like a disclaimer you see on, uh, on just about every mutual fund uh, or uh, ETF. Uh, um, you're right, and you're, you're, you're getting into what I think is, uh, from an economics perspective, the most interesting part of the field, and that's behavioral economics, because we know for a fact that, that the markets are not rational and that uh, there are all sorts of inefficiencies built into the, the pricing mechanisms that are derived entirely from uh, human psychology and I suppose we can argue genetics, uh, whatever. You know, it's interesting. One of the most fascinating presentations I've ever heard uh, in the industry was some years ago at a uh, Credit Suisse uh, market structure event. And they had some uh, primate psychologists from uh, Yale. And uh, they had taken two different uh, species of monkeys who deviated from the human evolutionary tree 420 odd million years ago or something like that. And of course, to the you know, amusement of a room full of largely in front of traders, they said, yeah, and we taught them how to trade. <laughs> And uh, of course, the, uh, it wasn't a terribly sophisticated trading. The, the monkeys were trained to exchange metal tokens for food. And uh, depending on the strategies they would use, different results would uh, come back and everything else. Well, the funny thing is that when humans were given exactly the same set of scenarios, they did exactly the same things. And they weren't actually mathematically rational, but uh, you, you could tell that you know the results were basically along the lines of we fear our losses more than we enjoy our wins and and you can see from an evolutionary perspective why that would be the case that you want to um, you, you know if you, if you if you twist your ankle going after the mastodon that will feed the village for an entire year you're probably going to die whereas if you you know gather some berries and nuts and bring them back and you can eat for the next day, you know, you, you'll, you'll be okay. It's not, you know, you're not swinging for the fences. It's not the big win because the risk isn't there. In any event, uh, I, I, I digress slightly. But the point here is that you're, you're absolutely right that, that, you know, the human factors uh, in uh, and the behavioral analysis of how markets operate is, I think, one of the most interesting 
parts of, of the research that's been undertaken over the last few years and explains a good deal about how you know people react and think in uh, in the context of the stock market so it, it, it is absolutely as i say groundbreaking and essential work for people to understand how this whole place works doing an analysis of companies is sometimes reading what executives uh, have said at conferences or presentations some of the research shows that that could be uh, overly optimistic on occasion i'm going to be moving into the question about believe the uh, CEO has a retail background, a real estate background, oil and gas, and not-for-profit background. There's a hole when it comes to cannabis, the history, the medical side. And I'm just wondering if, if you believe a person should have more of a cannabis background, or if you think oil and gas might be just as well for a lot of these companies. Well, as I said before, I'm not going to talk about individual companies, individual management teams, and so on. Um, it is, uh, generally speaking, a unique space in that people with experience in the business, uh, almost by definition, were coming to that part of the world, you know, from, from the black market side, um, as well, uh, in particular in, 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 you know, the grow operations, for example. Now, that's not to say that there aren't folks who have been active in uh, conducting research, you know, in, in, in various aspects. Um, but you're right, uh, specific industry experience, since this industry is only, you know, at most in North America, I think three years old, you know, effectively, is, uh, is, is going to be something that's, uh, that's hard to find for, for companies. But, you know, what I will say is that, uh, you know, we certainly see as uh, things uh, mature, and in particular, when we look at companies that uh, are based in the United States that already have substantial operations and revenues in place, that the industry is attracting folks from very senior parts of, you know, the existing retail markets, advertising, marketing, product development, you know, you name it. The management teams are attracting very talented and very experienced executives with, with very strong backgrounds uh, in those particular uh, areas of undertaking. You know, I should have introduced Believe a little bit to audience members who may not uh, be fully aware. I was wondering, do you think you can give a few moments describing what they do or who they are? No, okay, sorry, my apologies. <laughs> I realize that I'm putting words in your mouth that I shouldn't have. Um, the next question has to do with MedMen, and uh, I don't think you can answer this question either. Uh, it has to do with, uh, no, I shouldn't ask you. I was just about the factors of success for how they're doing, with, what's bringing them forward. But uh, I, I will answer that question if you don't want to. Yeah, yeah, no, you, uh, you, you go ahead. Uh, I'm not a stock analyst. I just uh, run the exchange. So it's, no, 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 very nice, very nice. Uh, I was just going to say when it comes to uh, MedMen or even Believe to some extent, we have to recognize that competition is out there, that there's a lot of factors for what makes this industry difficult and success or lack of success for some of these companies. So the competition is there. There's new technologies that are going to be implemented in a lot of a lot of the growing operations and a lot of manufacturing companies that we're going to see how that affects uh, growing production. I understand that uh, Afria has mentioned that they're going to be bringing that they're going to be bringing their uh, gram production to less than a dollar. So that's just an example of how over the next couple of months, up until the beginning of next year, I don't mean 2019, 2020 we're going to be seeing production change. Apparently, lighting is also a big factor in a lot of these growing companies. Uh, they're seeing you know, new techniques for improving production. We also have to recognize, regardless of how these companies do in the, in the market, the customers 
are going to be changing, their demands are going to be changing. For example, if a company has a recall and there has to be a, a reputation that needs to get hit on occasion, customers may react and it might also affect how, uh, how the company does overall. So do you have anything to say about how the industry is evolving or, or you see things in the near future? Well, I think you're right to focus on uh, competition and, and really every, every step of the way. I had the privilege of attending the MJ Biz conference in Las Vegas, I think three weeks ago now. We got off the plane and the first billboard uh, outside McCarran Airport was for MedMen. The second billboard outside the airport was for MedMen. And within a minute or two, we were driving past their superstore east of the uh, strip and with you know flashing lights and, uh, and all of that. But then I realized there were several other retail outlets in a similar part of town uh, that also had you know very very uh, strong street presence uh, I guess we'll call it advertising various uh, venues uh, you know throughout uh, Las Vegas and so on so absolutely you know there, there's uh, it is a very very competitive space that uh, that's, uh, that's coming up and it will be as I said interesting to see as the industry develops uh, who the winners and losers are and uh, as we discussed, you know, there, there are no guarantees. It's still, you know, at a, at a stage where, you know, it's not obvious uh, who, uh, who the successful companies uh, are going to be. Um, you know, I will say another thing that uh, uh, has been a, I think, a direct result of uh, Canadian uh, policy in the space, and that is, if you look at the differences between the United States and Canada, especially on the retail delivery side, the Americans can actually advertise in, in most of the legal recreational jurisdictions. And I think that's going to be incredibly important because again, if you look at just about any area of consumer packaging, the, the people who make all the money are the, 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 the brand folks, right? So, you know, Anheuser-Busch, uh, I'm guessing, uh, makes most of the money from a beer uh, as opposed to the guy who grew the hops. I think we, we all understand that. and. I think the uh, Canadian growers are, and I, and I know they're trying, uh, but they're going to have a very difficult time, I think, developing the kinds of consumer brands that we're seeing already in the space in the, in the U.S. I think what we're going to see is because there is uh, substantial spillover advertising, and of course, I haven't yet seen the TV commercial yet, but, but certainly as far as, you know, internet-based uh, advertising, as well as uh, point of sale uh, or local advertising through billboards. And in fact, MedMen had uh, wraps on the local uh, taxis that week. So again, very, very powerful street presence. In Canada, that's just not going to be the case. And I think what's going to happen is that the U.S. companies uh, are going to be the ones that develop the identifiable consumer brands moving forward in this uh, area. And there is likely to be substantial spillover uh, into the Canadian marketplace so that as people go to the retailer, you know, whether it's uh, depending where you live in Canada, whether it's a government store, whether it's a private retailer, you know, you're likely going to be seeing uh, people select brands that they know but have been developed in the United States. You know, as we come to the close, uh, there's just a few more questions to ask. I was just wondering if there's anything you want to say to your staff, maybe there's somebody <laughs> that uh, you want to recognize in your executive well, uh, you know, again, it's it's one of those things that unless I, uh, you know, name everybody, uh, you know, I, I'm going to make some uh, serious enemies. 
uh, especially since uh, you know it is a bonus time of the year as well. So uh, in any event, I, I, I will say that uh, you know we, I, I have been blessed with a great team, not just from the listings marketing and, and development area, uh, who have had a, a spectacular year. I mean, we've literally traveled all over the world this year. I think we've been on every continent, you know, with uh, working with potential issuers. So, you know, from that angle, you know, people, as I say, have been tremendously committed and, uh, as I say, have been worked very hard. But of course, our listings uh, regulation group, they've uh, processed more listings applications by a large measure than we've ever seen before. We'll probably end the year with close to 125 new companies uh, listed on the exchange, which I think is about double our previous uh, record. As well, they're involved with the, uh, with the financings, and so we've gone, you know, again, more than doubled last year's uh, records uh, in that space. And of course, there's also the uh, the folks that uh, keep the plumbing going in terms of the technology, you know, the, the the matching engine, the market data feeds, the websites, and all of that kind of thing. So. It, it really does uh, take a village to operate a stock exchange. So it, uh, you know, it, it's, it's been a real privilege and a lot of fun uh, to lead this group of folks. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's really very, very satisfying to see us doing as well as we are after, uh, you know, building this place up over so many years. Companies that are looking to access the Canadian public capital markets for, for growth capital can contact me or the, uh, the, the listings group. Our, Contact information is on the website, www.csc.com. And uh, we are constantly meeting with uh, companies that uh, are, are, are evaluating the uh, opportunity to go public in Canada. We have a very strong network of uh, lawyers, accountants, and uh, investment uh, bankers uh, that, uh, that can work with those companies. So if people are, you know, again, uh, really coming at this for the first time, we do have the ability to make introductions to ensure that they get the professional advice and support that they need to uh, work through the going public process. So um, we're delighted to uh, sit down and, uh, and, and work with entrepreneurs, you know, really at every stage of their development. Thank you very much for your time. Milton, thanks a lot and have a great day. This is Milton again. I, I hope you enjoyed the show. Today uh, we talked to Richard and I can see a next future episode talking to Cy Williams. He's the editor of High Canada, a very popular cannabis magazine online. You'll love it. If you want to reach me, contact me at uxbigideas.com. I'm planning to host a future webinar on how to use social media to promote your cannabis business within the law. You can subscribe to my newsletter. You can find it on the website, UX Big Ideas. Have a great day.